Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Forever. Dog. Hey everyone, welcome back to our show. Welcome guys. <laughs> it's Peppermint. And it's Caswell, and this is It's a uh, Motherfucking Mess. <laughs> I thought we were going to go back and forth. It's a mess. Yeah, <laughs> that's how it goes. Um, how you doing? Um, I'm good. I was in the studio today. I recorded uh, two songs. I got mm-hmm. a summertime EP coming out, and I'm working on a bunch of other projects with other artists. So I'm trying to record at least a couple times a week. Summer, summer, summertime. Time. Summer 2020. <laughs> you know that's just gonna be crazy. You know why? Crazy. Why is it gonna be so good? <laughs> huh? Besides your music, why is it? Why is Summer 2020 going to be well, so I, I'll tell you. Okay, you want to tell us? I guess that this doesn't have to be a secret. I guess this, this will be special information for our listeners that have followed our careers. This this summer is actually the 10-year anniversary of the Ice Cube Truck video. Can you believe it's 10 years? Yay! Oh, my God. So to commemorate, I'm, I'm shooting a video for my song Guava Juice using all the guys from <laughs> that I used 10 years ago now. All of the hot, sexy performers. Um, yeah, you know what? Everyone... Everyone's in good shape except me. <laughs> like I'm the only one. I'm the only Aww. one that has to tighten up in the LB. Department. You're in good. You're everyone, in good shape. I mean, Geronimo looks better than before. Uh, um, Avi is now like a fucking yoga instructor, and his body's shredded to pieces. Everyone, everyone looks good. I'm the I'm the only one that I'm worried about. So, but I have about nine weeks to get ready. So I just ordered uh, two donuts and a coffee from <laughs> from Uber Eats. So starting tomorrow, ask. starting tomorrow, the starvation diet plan. You just full ordered two donuts. <laughs> I literally said to my roommate, just get me a two of anything. I don't give a shit. Like, or like maybe one say, of them is Bavarian cream. Did you say Bavarian cream? Yeah, but you said barbarian. Yeah, it's I didn't Bavarian. say Bavarian cream. Okay, okay. It's ba- it's barbarian, right? No, it's Bavarian, like Bavaria. Oh, it's Bavaria. not barbarian. I love you. <laughs> You're adorable. Um, so, uh, uh, and you're finishing up an album. You just dropped a single this week. I just dropped a single. I, and I saw the lyrics video. I'm going to be pushing it. Thank you. Yes, please. Um, it's called What You're Looking For. And it's basically, you know, my feel good, clap your hands track. Um, and it's a single. It's going to, I think the song is going to be on the album. Um, I'm still trying to figure, I'm still like, album's supposed to come out this spring. Still have to figure out a name of the album, song orders, like the, t- you know, the orders of the song. So mm-hmm. there's some work to be done, mm-hmm. but I'm feeling All good right. about it. I had a weird dream last night. I had a dream that my mom was in the dream. Long story short, we got into an argument. But um, okay. so then today, I'm at the movies with Mila Jam, and my mom calls me. She's like, I had a dream about you last night. Oh, That's shit. the first time in my life that I can think of that I've ever dreamt about someone who also dreamt about me, like someone that I love. You right. know, like, we, I don't know if anybody else has dreamt about me, but, like, that's the first time that I've ever called somebody, and the first thing I have to say to them is the same thing that they have to say to me, which is, you were in my dream last night. It's well. It's was, did scary. she dream about the same thing that you dreamed? Did she? No, that would have been crazy. Dream? She didn't tell me the full story, but no. From what she says, it wasn't the same dream. Because that would have been some Freddy Krueger ass shit. Yeah, <laughs> you were in my dream last night. Did you mean what you told me? Yes, run. <laughs> anyway, I digress. This is not a podcast about dreams. This is a podcast of your dreams. <laughs> well, we could we dream that we get the shit together every week, or maybe it happens, but that's about it. On the this is an advice pod, an official, unofficial 
Advice Podcast, where we uh, take questions from our dear and loyal listeners, and we try our best to not fuck up their lives. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. And the theme of today's show is... Wait, now, is this actually the theme? Is it really the theme? Is that what we're calling it? (laughs) White people. It's called white people? I see white people. (laughs) White people, like white people... White white people, but you say it as you shake your head. So it's like, it's it's white in parentheses and then people. <laughs> no, it's just white people. I got you. It's people in parentheses. Yeah. <laughs> From these letters. Oh, my god. Well, before we get to the white people nonsense, I think you got something to say. It's so true. Just say it. Just say it. it. Is- Spit it out! <laughs> it is time for this week's Amazing Queen. That's right. Amazing Queens is a part of the show where we show some love to the movers and shakers in and out of the LGBTQIA plus community. And this week's Amazing Queen is... I don't know why I made that sound. Ma Rainey, (laughs) a.k.a. the mother of blues. She is a pioneer of the earliest generation of blues singers to record. Known for her very powerful vocal abilities, energetic disposition, majestic phrasing, and moaning style of singing, her qualities are present and most evident in her early recordings, Bow Weevil Blues and Moonshine Blues. She began performing as a teenager and became known as Ma Rainey after her marriage to Will Rainey in 1904. They toured with the Rabbitfoot Minstrels and later formed their own group, Rainy and Rainy. Sounds like a, a law firm or something. <laughs> Rainy and Rainy, the assassinators of blues. Word, first, hello, bitch. that's it. Assassinators. Uh, I wanted to take that. I was like, I got to keep that in. Um, her first recording was made in 1923. Her first actual recording was made in okay. 1923. And in the next five years, she made over 100 recordings. That's a lot of recordings. Um she died of a heart attack on December 22nd in 1939 in a play about Ma Rainey uh, by August Wilson, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, which basically brought her existence and everything fabulous about her into modern times, okay. won a Pulitzer Prize in 1982. So she, the, her, how she's connected to the queer community, which is really interesting, is she came up in a time when you couldn't be a queer, a lesbian performer um, out it was just impossible to have a career, let alone a safe existence in the Black community and just in America in general. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of her queerness really came through in her sort of subversive nature of delivering her lines. Um, here's mm-hmm. one example of her line. Um, Went out last night with a crowd of my friends. It must have been women because I don't like no men. Um, and this was just basically like all pre, this is all pre Stonewall. So it's really important to sort of contextualize this. Not that conspicuous, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But you would never think a woman would talk about it anyway. So like, oh. Yeah, I mean, there weren't a lot of out lesbians talking about that kind of thing. And so, you know, it's, granted, she lived and died and thrived during a time when, when being out as a lesbian just wasn't, or an out queer person in general, wasn't something that you could do safely. So she didn't do it. She wasn't living in today's you know, times. Um, but she was definitely uh, um, a pillar. Looking back, she was definitely a, a pillar in the LGBT community. And unfortunately, she died, um, you know, before we she was able to see sort of where we've come today. But luckily, she was posthumously, posthumously indicted into the Blues Foundation Hall of Fame in 1983 and in 1990 into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which means that she was probably the first or a very important historic lesbian figure to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. There's not even a lot of women inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, let alone mm-hmm. lesbians. And so um, even though she wasn't out as a lesbian, she mm-hmm. was a very important person in the LGBT community because there was lots of lesbians who were listening to her lyrics as a coded language. And so for that reason, we hail the fabulous and the probably lesbian Ma Rainey mm-hmm. as our exemplary queen. You know what it reminds me of, though? It reminds me of how, ha, how like, years ago, we, the gay, a lesbian, bisexual, but right now I'm talking about 
but gays and lesbians would really take anything they could to feel that they were being represented. Like, remember yeah. when Fried Green's Tomatoes came out? They're like, oh, yeah, it's a lesbian movie. And you're like, "It's no, it's not. It's like they were like low key. I mean, it was kind of like a love affair, but it was like very low key and like hidden. And it, it and so like you would just take what you could. And even if there was like a character that wasn't out as gay, but kind of acted gay in TV in the 80s, you would like flock to that just for some any, any even kind before of the 80s. I mean, that yeah. is. It's so interesting. I was watching, uh, I can't remember what I was watching, but I was watching something. Uh, it wasn't the celluloid closet. There's uh, something about being out in Hollywood and entertainment industry. Anyway, they were talking about queer characters and queer actors and what it was like to be gay and and being in the closet as an actor. <clears throat> and they said, basically, to no surprise in Hollywood, a lot of actors were gay and like around the turn of the century in the f- 30s, 40s, and 50s. Um, but that all kind of went underground. Obviously, that's no surprise. Mm-hmm. But what in. what ended up happening is they would write these characters, um, and they would be written as heterosexual, but they would be acted as gay, and they would, you know, so mm-hmm. like the all the characteristics, re- they were able to actually sort of flame it up, for lack of a better word, on camera. When he'd be like, "Oh, let me introduce you to my wife." He, you know, like he, since he was talking about his wife, he was able to really, you know, be a super flamboyant and just like much right. more what we would call femme. And that is where we would identify with. And so I think there's a lot of people, like you said, would just latch on to any example of a, of a queer kind of existence, even if they weren't out, because being out and queer on film and television is a new thing. Yeah. So anyway. Right, well, speaking of new things. <laughs> We got a new topic. It's called white people. And uh, it's all. And I'm sure that you can guess it's all about white people. It is. So (laughs) we actually have four questions this time. Instead of um, our usual three. There was a lot to choose from, but they were basically about. uh, White people. Anyway, white people. (laughs) So we'll just get into it. (laughs) All right. We'll just get into it right now. Okay. Adam, cue the music. Hey guys, love your show. I have a little issue I'm dealing with right now, but I haven't heard you guys talk about it yet. Hopefully, you will want to tackle my question. I am a 20-year-old straight black trans female living in Lawrence, Kansas. I've worked at a small coffee shop for the past eight months and really enjoy my job while I'm going to Kansas University. My problem is I have a boss that is a white woman in her early 30s and she is obnoxiously woke. And what I mean by that is she is always going out of her way to explain to me how woke she is. She put woke in quotes. She talks about her involvement with the Black Lives Matter campaign on a daily basis. She goes out of her way to talk to me about what she saw on the news last night regarding more mistreatment of people of color by the police. At the time Kamala Harris was running for president, she always talked to me about how we need a woman of color for president in the White House running things. I don't think that she's wrong and I don't disagree with her point of view. It just makes me extremely uncomfortable that she is going out of her way to talk to me about these things because I am black. I don't know if it's a white guilt thing or if she is looking for my approval, but it makes me feel uncomfortable. Is there any way for me to talk to her about this or should I just do my best at avoiding her? Which is pretty difficult to do because we work in a small coffee shop and there's typically only one other employee with us. I'm the only person of color working at this coffee shop, so I don't feel like there's another person for me to turn to. Let me know if you have any ideas and how I can make this situation less uncomfortable. Love Mona Foot, Captain and Coke. <clears throat> Not uh, Mona Foot, my... Captain and Coke. <laughs> I love Mona Foot. Bring back Mona Foot. <laughs> Wonder Woman. Just... Okay, y'all, YouTube her. YouTube Mona Foot. Uh, this this is definitely uh, yeah, your definitely department. YouTube. <laughs> Why is this my department? Well, as far as experience, like, do you have? Having like, white people it, to have microaggressions. I mean, they're, okay, they're not mic. There's a difference between yeah, it's micro- not a microaggression. It's not a microaggression. It's um, like, yeah. Overcompensation of wokeness. <laughs> what did you do? You feel that they that they that they want your approval at times. That well, they might I mean, I'm just gonna volley it back to you real quick because I think that yes, oh, yes, I do have experience with this, but it's not just my department. I mean, we were talking about being black and having a white person talk to you. That might yes. Between the two of us, I'm the only one with that experience, as far as I can tell. Okay. But there are definitely, I'm sure that you've been 
the only gay person in the room and someone trying to like overcompensate about how like, you know, accepting they are. Um, And so I think that this is just something that we've all experienced in one way. And unfortunately as sweet, it's like equally as endearing as it is nerve wracking, at least for me. Um, Mm. It's really, I think it's really difficult. And the last thing you want to do, at least that I would want to do is say something to, turn them and be like, well, fine, you know, you've, you've tranny bitch. You're like, I would never want to say something to like make them completely (laughs) turn the other way and turn off. And so I think the response and how we treat that is it's important because this person is not necessarily, this person's not an enemy. I mean, obviously, Mm -hmm. you know, Mona is, can acknowledge that. Um, But I think it has to be handled with kid gloves it's almost like that child that's a nuisance that keeps asking too many questions about their, maybe their homework. You want mm-hmm. them to just shut up and go watch TV, but it's probably better that they're really into their schoolwork anyway. So you, you kind of just have to endure it. And so I think mm-hmm. that there's a couple things that Mona Flip can do in that situation, because bottom line is we don't always feel comfortable talking about these things at work. Um, right. You know, like when you're trying to get, make some coffee at the cafe it's not necessarily the best time to like educate somebody on race, <laughs> especially if, if other customers are coming in. I don't know. Right. Um, anyway, so I think it'd be or maybe the, the only thing I can really think of to do other than try to tolerate it as long as you can. And until you can't, then just quit. Um, that is probably try to enlist other people in the conversation, other coworkers in the conversation well, she said that there's only one other coworker. It's a small coffee shop, and typically right. there's only one other coworker. And the, but you know, she's I, the only I person thought she made it seem like it was her and the boss mm. and another coworker. Yeah, so three people. Right, right, three like, people. So. Well, I mean, look, two is better than one. And I don't know that obviously the other person is not as woke, but I do think, look, it's not about like who has what opinion and who's right and how many people have what opinion. Just get that other person, that other co- coworker has an opinion on these things. And so it sucks to do it, but I would probably try to get them involved and just get them in- engaged in the conversation so you don't feel like you're taking the brunt of all of her energy. I'm not saying that the other coworker has to answer questions about what it's like to be black. I'm saying when your boss comes over and Jane, the coworker's in the corner, I don't know that her name's Jane. I'm just making that up. Um, you could be like, Jane, did you watch, you know, The Bachelor last night? Let's talk about that. Did you watch 60 Days In? Did you watch 60 Days In? Exactly. And, like, you know, find a way to, like, divert it and start talking, basically change the subject. Um, She probably doesn't want to talk to her boss in the first place, but she probably just feels like she's stuck in the situation. Um, Not to mention it's your boss. But talk about TV, right? That's, I mean, that's obviously, that's a normal thing to talk about (laughs) is television. I I feel like, I think that it, it, it might not be just, oh, a person of color I can talk to about this. But it's also kind of like some people when they just all of a sudden wake up and have this realization that of how they've been affected by institutionalized mm-hmm. racism and homophobia at that moment that like, oh, shit, like I've been taught this. Much. You know, they kind of have these aha moments. They feel they need to express it to somebody. And her mm-hmm. boss, the white lady, might not have anyone else in her life that she can talk to and if she's working at this place 45 hours a week or something then you know she certainly might not be in a situation where she has friends especially like white friends that she can talk to about race you know well see i think that's part of the problem right there is that i mean i don't know the boss's situation and she might actually live alone and have no other humans in her life but chances are she has at least some other white people she can talk to this is that's Mm. the key is talking to preaching to the choir about race issues is is good to kind of exercise your brain and get comfortable with some of these ideals. Mm-hmm. But the people mm-hmm. that need to be having these conversations amongst each other in order to realize mm-hmm. and create change is the white people need to be talking to the other white people. Because they love to pretend racism doesn't exist in this when country. When they're around anymore. each other, yeah, honey. They love we won't it. say shit. And then all of a sudden when you get around the black person, then is when you want to talk. So I think it's important that I mean, you can't really tell your boss to go and talk to her white friends. But I, I would, I would uh, go talk to your white friends, honey. Don't tell me. I know the world is racist. I could hear you saying that. <laughs> um, but, but I, the other thing I was going to say is, I do think it's important to kind of ch- 
unpack a little bit and ex- examine mm-hmm. why it is that this makes you uncomfortable. I mean, she's ex- you've expressed it, and I he- heard your letter. I paid very close attention. But I mean, like, on a deeper level, why is it that this makes mm-hmm. you feel so uncomfortable? <clears throat> and And only, I think that's important to only do that so that we can figure out where your, your where your actual limit or boundary is because right now the limit is just kind of like you're taking it as long as you can but you can't really take it so i think it's important to like draw a very specific line in your mind so that mm-hmm. when that's crossed you'll know how to react or at least when to notify cuz it's never um inappropriate for you to let your boss know that you're not comfortable talking about something right it it, it might, because the thing about it is it's probably not something she's completely uncomfortable talking about, but nobody feels comfortable when they are when they feel like they're being singled out. Yeah, and, and forced like into the conversation. There's an agenda or someone's looking for your approval. You know, that happens all the time. But mm-hmm. um, um, I, I want to hear what happens, but I think that she should just like figure out a way to change the subject and talk about TV. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, figure out a way, change that thing. And if, like we go into a cafe and somebody, and we... Order you look at us funny when we order a tall black and white. We'll know exactly what's wrong. <laughs> Mona, white people, white people love the show Ninety Day Fiance. <laughs> so just get educated on that. Bring up Ninety Day Fiance or Love After Lockup. White people love that show. So sounds good. That's how I saw the demographics. So <laughs> let's move hit on it to with the question next number question. two. <laughs> question number two. Cue music. Hey Kaz. Hey Peppermint. I listen to your show with my friends every Thursday, and I hope you pick my question. I'm a gay white man emailing you from San Diego, California. I'm 27 years old, and I've been dating this gorgeous black guy for the past four months. I'm 100% top. Okay. First of all. Okay. Okay. (laughs) And this doesn't (laughs) seem to bother him at all. We have really great sex, and I've been feeling like we are probably falling in love. In bed, I tend to play the dominant role, and he plays the submissive role. I do like that he's um, distinguishing dominant from top, because that's not always the same thing. Um, True. Dominant role and the submissive role. Uh, And about a month ago, we started getting into light role-playing, in which he calls me daddy in bed. I am fine with that. What I am not fine with is, for the past couple weeks, he started calling me master. <laughs> and then I and then I he asked me to call him boy. Oh This makes me extremely uncomfortable, you think? Yeah. And makes me feel like he wants to act out an episode of <laughs> What? An episode of what? What? Read it. <laughs> You're like, I can't. Makes me feel like he wants to reenact an episode of Roots or 12 Years a Slave. <laughs> I can't believe this question. As he I said, said an episode of Roots. As I said, we've always done a few playful daddy scenarios with him, but. God. <laughs> that was a uh, But a master and boy scene. Gives me a really creepy, uncomfortable feeling that resembles slavery. Okay? Uh, I brought it up to him and he totally laughs it off and says, No, it's not like that. It's not like I'm asking you to call me the N-word. And what's the difference between daddy and master anyway? Uh, hello? The other night I was fucking him and he kept calling me master and telling me that he was my property. I got so uncomfortable that I lost my erection, but blamed it on the drinking because I didn't want to have the conversation about race again. Am I wrong to think that this is fucked up? He seems to think that I'm that I'm letting my white guilt get the best of me. I don't have to deal with it when he won't admit that this has some connotation or connection to slavery. What do you think I should do? I never thought sex role-playing would be such a mindfuck. P.S. If you choose my fake name, it's Kelly Mantle Stoli Martini with a twist. All right. Kelly! Kelly Mantle Stoli Martini with a twist. I think that his black boyfriend is going to push it to the limit as far. Like, he's going to show up because just let me wear these chains. Like, I, it's just, it has nothing to do with slavery. Like, he's going to, like, he is going out of, like, 
I do you think I feel like maybe his boyfriend doesn't know that he wants this or something. I don't know. This is wait. Just, what do you mean? His boyfriend doesn't know. What? <laughs> like I think maybe like either his boyfriend really does want a slave master role play situation, or he really does want to be. Maybe he just does want to be like super dominated by like okay because white. Here's the thing. I was thinking about this when you when you, when you were reading the letter. Is that if it was two white guys that got together, uh-huh, and uh-huh, I've uh-huh. I've seen I've seen two white people two white guys get together, master and, and slave, master master and master and slave or master and boy, and obviously there's no connection there because they're both white. But even, I mean, I you could even take he it might a, want that same connection. You can even take not, it a little bit further than that. That they, I mean, obviously when somebody <clears throat> says master and slave. It is a master and slave relationship. And exactly. so you can talk about slavery and this white person being the slave all day long. And no one obviously thinks, I don't think it really reminds any of those people in that situation about the, the one of the great history horrors of history mm-hmm. that we've had in this country. Go ahead. Right. I mean, I, I mean, I think it is possible that his white guilt, but also just him having a conscience and 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 education about mm-hmm. historical background of this mm-hmm. country that he doesn't that this this is what it reminds him of if it, if it was a white person asking to be called boy or slave he probably wouldn't think that but because of, of this is having this effect on him yeah so i do think that his boyfriend has the right to what to want what he wants but his his but the the white guy writing to us definitely has the right to say no to something that makes him uncomfortable for any reason. Of course, when it comes to sex and role playing, mm-hmm. right? And he uh, he also said something about like I guess that when he he got so turned off by it that he lost his erection and then just said it was on said it was due to drinking because he didn't want to have the conversation about race again. So it seems like. It seems like it's a conversation that neither of one of them really want to have. And it seems to be one that his boyfriend's really uncomfortable having as yeah. well. So I don't know. Like It sounds like these. this is, I mean, it's just so, it's so deep. It's clearly so deep seated in our, in their relationship, but then also in our, in our history as a country. And so like on one hand, it's prob- it's kind of problematic that this is something that the boyfriend's asking him to do. Um, and on the other hand, maybe it is a little bit of his white guilt that's making him not say this because he wouldn't have this reaction if the person were white. And so it, it's kind of a, a gray area. No I just want to say, I have a problem. I, I don't even like guys calling me daddy in bed. I mean, it happens more often than I would like to say, right. but I I typically don't get too into that at all. And if anyone called me master, to me that just sounds so dated. Like it was like when I was a kid and I watched those 80 movies and be, there would be a comedy and people would be in like those like bondage. Like it just doesn't like I'm not I'm not into that look like at all. And just to to think about that is kind of it's not it's not a turn on for me. I understand why it turns on other people. But in general, I don't like that kind of role playing in bed. So I would be turned off and and, and <clears throat> Like if when I was dating a black guy, one of the times that if I, he ever called wanted me to call him boy or slave or he called me master, that would make me that would make me roll my eyes at him. I'd probably tell him to get out of my bed. Yeah, I mean, I don't have I can't I like I can't really speak to the sexual piece of this in terms of a fetish or wanting to have like some kink in the in the bedroom. I think when it comes to that to each their own and everyone should be able to do it. And so I really don't have an opinion on it. I think it's cool. Like have your fetish. And as long as your partner's willing to participate. And so on, on the really, 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 really simplest level that we have a couple here who want to engage in some erotic play. And one of the people is not on board with the, how it's supposed to get done. So that should kind right. of end it right there. But since it connects to something that's to, to raise, which is obviously a more nuanced conversation, then this is kind of something that really connects, this connects back to every other racial moment that both of these people have ever had um, right. when it comes to pain and, and and discrimination and racism, both individually and also in, in, in our country. And so it's really, I think it's really difficult to kind of solve this with mm-hmm. one 
piece of advice or one sentence because we would be we it's really how do we heal the the pain and the and the wounds of racism we can't do that in one piece of advice it takes years of work and a lot of unpacking and it, it's going to it means that the that we that black guy needs needs to examine why he's asking his lover why this turns him on and why his lover why he's asking his lover to do this but it also means the white guy is going to have to examine why he has resistance to it right and and i think that that's it really, it does remind me of a play that i so i didn't get to see and i really wanted to and i i hope that i didn't subconsciously avoid seeing it because it closed way too soon called mm. uh, slave play it was on broadway and it just closed recently this earlier this year and in slave play i didn't see it so i can't really editorialize it but it it asks people to it asks the audience members to really kind of unpack and and look at typical images imagery and relationships of slavery but then there's also like kind of reverse images in there. There's a, mm-hmm. there is something, there's a relationship like this, a black woman, not to give anything away, a black woman, I think she's enslaved, uh, has been enslaved by a white man and she is in a, um, a torrid love affair with him. And so I think that asks the question, is this like, you know, some sort of like, you know, Stockholm syndrome? Is this, is she really in love with him? Like, what does that mean? And and I think that there was there was certainly some blowback from people in the black community that were saying, you know, this is, you know, it's kind of messed up to have this be on a Broadway show. We still have so much further to go. And this kind of glamorizes this, like it makes it look like she enjoys being a slave. And and so we really do have to kind of unpack all that. I don't know right. how to begin to do that here, but right. it, it's important to do. Yeah, probably not on this show. No. But I do, I do, to, to answer your question, I think the the easiest way to shut it down is you could just be like, look, boo, this doesn't turn me on. I don't want right. to, like, that's it. And with you don't that's necessarily it. need to justify you that don't. you don't want to con- con- do something sexually. All you have to do is say that I'm not comfortable with that and that's that. If you need someone to do that, it's not me. Sorry, I know we were falling in love and shit, but you're not calling me master anymore. Is that fine? Fine. Let's go. <laughs> All right. Question number three. Cue music. Dear and Peck, I'm a 26-year-old gay white man originally from Oklahoma City, but recently moved to New York City. My younger brother is 24, and we've always been very close. I've noticed some differences between us since Trump won the presidency, and there have been some conflicts between myself, my brother, and a lot of my Trump-supporting family back in Oklahoma. My brother and I have always been really close, so the differences in our views have caused me more stress than with any other family member. My brother has been watching and connecting with a lot of the YouTube videos from what I consider to be white nationalists, like PewDiePie and Richard Spencer. Oh gosh. He'll tell me that it's not like he's following David Duke and that he's not a white nationalist, he's just a nationalist. That's like the, the number one saying, okay? <laughs> and is proud to be an American and has all types of reasonings for wanting to build the wall and keep people of color, particularly Mexican immigrants, out of the country. For the most part, claiming that they are stealing jobs from Americans born in this country. I can tell this point of view comes from wanting to keep America white, but he seems to just be rewording his opinion in a way that doesn't seem racist, homophobic, right. or anti-Semitic. And he tries to come across like it's just pride in being American. So, how do I argue with somebody that won't admit that he's siding with racist views? I heard that hate speech is increasing, and I can't believe my brother, of all people, is drinking the Kool-Aid. Is either of you dealing with similar situations or issues with friends and family members? Is he hiding that he's a racist, or does he really believe his new ideologies are just being a nationalist? Honestly, even I'm having a hard time telling the difference. Uh-oh. And that scares me. Do you have any advice on how to deal with, with what I consider to be white nationalism in my family? Signed, Roxy Andrews, Crown and Ginger. I am blessed with that. I am not dealing with any Trump supporters or white nationalists or white racists 
in my family, I did have a friend that I was very close with who oh, yeah, you did. became a, a Trump supporter. <laughs> who's not even a white to, person. Who's not he's he's gay. He also well, he he's pretty he fluent. Yeah, he also dates trans women. He can't pass his wife. So he's queer. He, he's queer. He he's queer. He's Mexican. He's HIV positive, and his entire face is tattooed. So, who do you think that is? Trump would take. (laughs) (laughs) Trump would take. Trump would take one look at him, consider him a member of MS thirteen. Yeah, and and probably try to tell him to go back to his country. What's worse is other Trump supporters might might do that. I mean, certainly white nationalists would. Well, I just want to. I just want to say before you you take this that. Or just want to say first that I know that me and you talked about this uh, letter beforehand and that you had recommended to me uh, the Cat Black YouTube video that talked about the rebranding of white supremacy in the country. And it was like truly brilliant. And uh-huh. uh, she talked about like a lot of similar things that came out in this letter, which coincidentally, like I watched <clears throat> around the same time. But I think that uh, I, w- I would tell Roxy, Roxy. Is that his name? Roxy, Roxy. that if, if if you're able to send your brother anything or learn, there is a, a brilliant YouTube video. It's about half an hour long. Grab a snack that Cat Black had um, edited and put together. Mm-hmm. And it's all about the rebranding of white supremacy and how um, <clears throat> how they've changed over the years, especially once uh, Trump became president, to make it look more acceptable to be right. And it's not racist. new. This was actually in... Uh, for those of you that haven't seen the video, and we'll, you'll see the, the the whole kick of white nationalism is basically just to follow the very brief timeline. It's the Tea Party rebranded as white nationalism today, which was the uh, you know uh, neo uh, sort of Nazi skinhead movement you know um, transformed into that you know so like these are all connected, um, and so there's this is not and and there's there's other countries that have used models like this in terms of calling it nationalism when it's actually mm-hmm. just racism it's starting to happen in um in Europe and other places so please watch that video thanks for bringing it up Caswell it's a really brilliant video she's fantastic she's a great um blogger and youtuber as well you should you know subscribe to her channel um yeah. Kat Black she's a trans woman and she's really educated and I like a lot of her videos and you should also follow contrapoints um, Natalie Wynn, just to balance things out. Um, anyway, so yeah, I, I, I don't have that much experience with this, Roxy. Um, I haven't been born into a, a white family. And so I don't have any family members that I know of that are, um, out and out Trump supporters, let alone white nationalists or even nationalists. Right. Um, that would be. That would be that. I think it would just play out a little differently in my family. Um, I do have family members who have been un, unusually more conservative than I would have initially wanted them to be, particularly with LGBTQ issues. Um, I honestly don't have much experience with this. But what I would do, what I would say is to try your best to, for every single video that there is that we we can, that I'm uh, I'm calling white nationalist propaganda. That's what I'm calling mm-hmm. for every single propaganda video that there is of white nationalists. There's another video by leftists or liberals um, or people who aren't racist. Uh, kind of combating that and dissecting that. And I, I, like you said, a great place to start is with this Cat Black video. Um, and so I really would try to, you know, show him another side of the the, the, the argument that, that sheds light. Because if you use the typical, the, part of the key here with white mm-hmm. nationalism in this country is that they are, that they have already done the research on what people who are liberal or people who are going to argue with them are going to say. And so they, they, they've, the people who are indoctrinating these, these young mm-hmm. ki- kids, the people that are teaching them these views are mm-hmm. saying, your friends are, your liberal friends are going to say white nationalism is racism. So when they say- they're giving them the ammunition. And they're giving them the ammunition. And then they're also saying, when you see them say that, that proves our point, you know, that, that, that they are X, Y, and Z. And so mm-hmm. it really kind of takes the wind out of the sails of the typical argument. The argument that any that you would just rationally have when you're having this conversation that won't work. 
you and need. And that makes it so much easier now that Trump is in office. Exactly. For them. Exactly. Because mm-hmm. because like <laughs> what was white. Ne- what? Go. Well, I was going to say, <laughs> case in point, there was something that happened last week uh, with, um, who I can't remember her name, Gun Girl. I don't know if you saw that in the news. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. When yeah, she, she said was, it was a riot when she showed up. Yeah, and she was, um, but she was chased off of or ran off the campus in Ohio. In Ohio. And so it begs the question, what do we do? Do we allow um, these, this isn't necessarily the same argument. Hers is through the guise of, um, you know, the Second Amendment rights, which, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not calling her a white nationalist. I don't know much about her, but mm-hmm. she just happens to be white. Go figure. Um, and so, but she, but the point is that as a conservative, because that's what she's, you know, um, purporting is that she's conservative and saying that these are conservative ideals that are under attack. She went, it works in her benefit to say, look, I went to this campus and the liberals, they were the ones who were being intolerant. They were the ones who were being, you know, um, you know, violent and and inciting a riot. I'm just innocent. I'm trying to have my my, you know, um, freedom of speech rights, and they're infringing on that and running me off the campus. And this w- was a video of hundreds of maybe even a thousand students or individuals. Obviously, a lot of them were students throwing beer and throwing drinks and stuff at the car and. And acting in a way that would might scare some people. Um, what what really kills me about all that and the uh, the the, um, the people defending the Second Amendment is that they only want to defend the Second Amendment as long as it's all white people carrying around guns. Because it's once it's all you know black people and black men carrying around guns with laser beams and shit like that, then they're gonna be then they're gonna have a different story to tell, you know. But because it's like white people carrying around guns, and did you see the picture? She's got the fucking scope on and everything, on, yeah, on rifle. And unfortunately, if I had to say who came out on top, I mean, I know it probably felt like a big win to the people there on the ground. And I wasn't there um, to, to get her off the campus and they were exercising their freedom of speech and freedom of, of assembly sort of rights. Um, I do think that in the end on social media, uh-huh. she ends up being the winner because she gets to play the victim and then it demonizes, you know, liberal students. Um, and I do think there is a really fine line when it comes to extreme type of behavior whether you're a liberal person that's going to go, like there's there's only it's just a fine line between a liberal person that's going to go and like shout down and and rip the signs out of the hand of someone who's conservative and this conservative person doing the same thing to someone who's liberal. And so I think it's we have to be careful. Um, I know I've gotten a little off topic, but that's I don't really have much advice. Well, other I mean, than, well, like uh, what what was once considered and what was called uh white white nationalism has just changed and rebranded as this been rebranded as nationalism and the alt-right it's been rebranded as critical for immigration and the concern for white people that they think that that people of color are gonna uh you know come over the border that's why they want the wall and they're gonna take their jobs mm-hmm. and it's gonna be a white genocide so they're just like so yeah, that, I mean, basically, it's just the paranoid other side of, of color immigrating. It's the flip side. What it is is it is white nationalism, in my opinion, white nationalism, and and sort of the rise of the quote alt right. It really is just the flip side. It's the it's the planned reaction to mm-hmm. the othering of people of color and minorities, calling them rapists and and exactly. drug dealers and whoever that are coming for you means that we you need to build a wall and get a gun to protect yourself. And that just makes it right. easier. So if you demonize mm-hmm. these people, if you call, you know, all black t- male teenagers thugs and criminals, and then you go and you... Michael Bloomberg. Yeah, hello. And you go and you make it, you make it difficult for them to um, hold a job after having a, a, a criminal record because you searched them and found maybe even no, no weed or right. well, the smallest amount of weed and threw them into jail for 10 years. And now they have a felony. Yeah. Yeah. Then these people are seen as criminals. They they're not able to vote. They're not able to carry um, legal, the, the guns legally that you would, if you are, you know, 
someone who wasn't arrested, someone who doesn't have a criminal record. Um, and so, like, the, the system is set up to criminalize and demonize certain people and embolden other people um, and separate. And really, it's it's set up to separate us. And mm. they're achieving it, you know, when, when we hear stories like this. Yeah, and Trump's helping it, too. And even David Duke was at the at the uh, rally in Charlottesville. And he had said that um, he was talking about, you know, Trump is fulfilling, fulfilling the promises of the KKK and Trump's father was in the KKK and his father, Fred Trump was even so out of pocket in 1927. He was arrested at a a Klan rally in Queens. So uh, uh, it just baffles me that, that, Donald Trump can get away with denying his connection to clear racism, his like his father and his whole life during his career and um, trying to keep black tenants out of his building. And like it's just it's just so wild to me. So but I I think, Roxy, what you should do is what you should do is learn as much as you can just to be knowledgeable about what the goal is of nationalist slash white nationalist slash alt-right and what they're really trying to do. But the the thing that's very interesting about them too is that they all have such strong ideas and some of them want to keep it like cool and we're going to be presentable. And in even a Richard Spencer, who is a huge supporter of Trump, before they went to Charlottesville, he like contacted everybody that uh, everybody part of the alt-right and said, when you show up, bear khakis and a fitted white shirt. And then there were a bunch of other guys that came up looking, you know, like they were missing all their teeth and flags wrapped around them and guns wrapped strapped to them and yelling and screaming. So like they they couldn't hold it together for more, for more than ten minutes. And then and then of course Heather Hare was murdered at the rally. And was it? It was J. It was Jason Kessler, the member of the alt right and part of the Unite the Right in Charlottesville, uh, that got a lot of the followers there. Who told the? He's the one that told the followers to look preppy and presentable and fitted pants and one nation, one people, and immigration. So and Kessler, uh, and he actually commended the violence that happened against Heather. Right. Hale, it's and they it's it no. I mean, look. Let's just cut to the chase. Like it's no. Yes. The, yes. This is racist behavior. Yes, they have a plan. Yes, they're trying to divide us. Yes, they're being sneaky and convincing young people who are unsuspecting to to follow them. And yes, they're they're tempting them with simple, seemingly very friendly videos. And the way that they're doing it is no, they're not handing on the they're not lurking around, you know, the the schoolyards. They're doing it online on YouTube and on social media. And so what you need to do, like Caswell said, it's important that you arm yourself with with the knowledge. Don't fall yourself down those rabbit holes because you kind of hinted at that. I don't want you to start watching the same videos that your brother watches with your brother. I think it's important that you watch the other videos just to become more knowledgeable on how it, on how it goes. And maybe I know that you're asking us for some help. Maybe there's some organizations. Well, I'll try to figure out some other some other resources for you because there must be resources by now that exist that are like help my family member is a white nationalist, what I what do I do? Um, but I do think that it's important that you just basically combat what he does and keep the lights on because what what will work for him to, to become a white nationalist completely indoctrinated is to turn off the lights where you are and not be able to see the truth around him and only see what the white nationalists in the videos are telling him. But if you keep turning on those lights and say, no, the, this is the truth, this is what's here, and help him see an, a, a different side of the conversation, then that may save him. Right. And and we you'll do you your best. best. <laughs> yeah. We wish you luck. <laughs> Should we continue? Yeah. Do we have one more question? It's a little shows a little longer than usual. So the question is this: Cue music. Cue music. Hey Peppermint, hey Caswell, both of you seem pretty open-minded and reasonable, so I wanted to ask you your honest opinion. I am a 23-year-old bisexual white boy living in San Francisco. I have dreadlocks. I've had dreadlocks for almost Uh. two years, and for some reason I haven't gotten any negative comments on them until fairly recently. About three or four times in the past three months, I've had a black person tell me that my hair is cultural appropriation, that it is insensitive, and once this guy yelled, hey white boy! 
boy, shave your head on the street. <laughs> I recently had a <laughs> I recently had a confrontation with the black girl I go to school with who was really offended by my dreadlocks. Look, I'm a hippie. I live a hippie lifestyle. I smoke a lot of weed and I started growing and twisting my hair into dreads during a summer long road trip I had about two years ago with my friends. I love my dreads. I think they look really sexy, but even, but, but when I venture outside of my circle of friends, I find I'm offending people and it makes me feel really bad. I'm torn because part of me wants to shave my head just so I don't have to deal with being afraid of offending someone and having an unwanted argument in public, but I also want to keep my dreads because I'm stubborn and quite frankly, I like them. Do you have any thoughts on what I should do? Signed, Madison Mojito. Madison. Uh, you know, this is really tough because it's it's one of those, you know, cultural appropriation versus cultural appreciation things. And I went to India recently and mm-hmm. I was um, I was invited to go to India. I was there for a gig, paid to be there for on a gig. And, you know, so. they took me. Yeah, they took me. I was there for a while and they took me um, shopping to some of um, to go get some, you know, traditional Indian garb. Um, and taught me how to, to wear it. And honestly, this is not my first time there. Every single time that I've been in a situation where, I've, of course, I'm going to say yes to, A, it's a gig. B, it's a, a chance to see and travel. And C, it's an opportunity to get to know more people. So every time I'm in a situation like that, I'm always going to do it. So I, I this is not my first time going to India. Um, but it was my first time really documenting everything. I've been given saris from people in India upon arrival. I've been asked to participate in whatever the situation was, the ceremony or the the -hmm. traditional thing, whatever was going on. They wanted me in. They didn't want me sitting on the sidelines. And and so, which I would, would have always been happy to do. But these particular people have always made it very clear that they want my participation. And part of that means wearing the clothing and wearing the whatever. Um, and so I did, and I posted some of that on my social media and the response was overwhelmingly supportive, but I did get some people, um, telling me that it was cultural appropriation. Most of the people seem to fit a particular profile, at least based on what they didn't seem to be people of Indian descent. They didn't (laughs) appear to be. Um, who these were people who seemed to know less about the culture than even I had learned in that short amount of time. And they were just knee-jerk reaction, sort of recognizing it as cultural appropriation. Now that's one half of this. Um, the other half of this that I, I didn't care that I did I didn't care so much about what those people thought, but it was really important to me, even in the time, not on social mm-hmm. media, but it was really important in to me to to make sure that I was doing this in a way that was appreciative and reverent and respectful. And so I was always checking in with the Indian people that I was there with. Is this respectful? Are you sure I should wear this? You know, is this, right. is this how I would wear it? it does, what does this mean? You know, like I was just wanting to know as much about what I was doing as possible because the worst mm-hmm. thing that you can do when you are engaging in a culture or a look that's been heavily kind of associated with one race or one tradition, I think the worst thing you can do is put it on quickly and then not even know what you're doing and not be educated about where it comes from or what it is. Mm-hmm. And so the the conversation about dreads for a long time has been about lifestyle and sort of a mm-hmm. Rasta lifestyle. This mm-hmm. is not just a hairstyle. It's a way of life. And part of that I think is true because I do know that over the years, just having braids, which I know are not the same thing, Mm-hmm. But in terms of having your having a, a style that you need to pay attention to and that takes time to kind of cultivate, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's kind of a, a whole like tradition of care that goes into wearing your hair in, in some of these styles. Mm-hmm. And so I do think that it's important to kind of be really knowledgeable about that. And there is a difference between white braided hair or white dreaded hair and mm-hmm. kinky hair that's not straight or silky um, being dreaded. I think there's a difference. And so to me, these are two different things. But it's important that if you're going to be walking down the street in a Black neighborhood or around other people that you, that they can see that there's more to it than just you being like, you know, 
oh, I'm so into voguing right now. Which is that, you know? Right. I mean, the big difference is like you were invited into this situation and you were, you know, you were brought from, you know, brought with Indian people to a place to get to get the garb and to wear it and to show how you wear it and how you appreciate it and to Mm -hmm. to come to the ceremony. So I don't think that he got off the plane in Jamaica and someone took his hand and said, let me do your hair. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? So there is a difference. But I will say that to some degree, I can kind of understand where he's coming from. Only because there was a point in my life that I remember probably around college time, I was around a lot of white hippies that, you know, went to bread and puppet, this thing in Massachusetts and like followed fish and shit. And, uh, and there, so they, they kind of, you know, dressed like your stereotypical hippie. And then some of them had like long dreads, like the girls had dreads, the guys had dreads. And I kind of start more of like, you know, like a a pothead hippie thing to me. And so I can kind of understand how he would be in a circle of friends in which they all kind of have the same attitude about life and fashion, their whole lifestyle. So he was never surrounded by that. But welcome to the city. You're no longer on the trip. You're no longer going cross country. Okay, so now now you're in San Francisco. You're going to be surrounded by a bunch of people. And you're just going to have to deal with that and try to understand where they're coming Uh from. And if you really love it that much, then keep it. But then now you know that there are some people that are not going to appreciate that. And whether or not you see it as cultural appropriation or cultural appreciation, that that might become something that you get sick and tired of dealing with. And I'm not saying that you're right i'm not saying that you're wrong but i think that that people certainly have the right to be offended or feel a type of way but i will say that that there are some styles that white people do that just put a pit in my stomach and i just start like when i'm talking about hair right now so dreads don't do that to me as much as when i see a white person with like with braids with cornrows like when i see a white girl with cornrows it really does make me feel like or like even like even when a rich white lady comes back from jamaica and she's got the braids it 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 does make me feel a kind of way and but it does i don't it doesn't have the same effect on me on with dreads maybe it should uh-huh. um but maybe it's maybe it's because of I've, I've seen a lot of white people in dreads since i was in 7th grade well um the, the, you just, when you talk about bad, <laughs> bad well, corners, do you, do you, like, let me ask you a question. Are you, are you more offended by are you more offended by white girls or what? Were you more affected by white people when they have cornrows, or more offended by white people when they have uh, dreads, or is it the same or neither? I do think. I mean, look, there's a difference between dreads and braids. Like I said before, okay. Um, I do think there are. I certainly I know humans who've gotten braids. And for one reason or another, don't keep them in for more than a few days. I've seen I've seen some folks go get their hair braided on their way to Coachella, and before they get home, before the weekend is up, the the braids are out. And so I, I do think that braids are an easy way to get a quick look for some people. Um, and like I said, there's a whole kind of culture and system in hair care for braids too. I think dreads are not the kind of thing you can do just overnight and have them, you know, I mean, obviously it's more of a commitment. Takes dedication. It takes dedication, no matter who you are. You have to to, probably have to cut them out, um, you know, when you're going to, when you're done with them. And so I do, from that regard, I do think it's easier. I, I, I keep thinking, getting this bad imagery. If anybody saw a couple months ago that, um, Comme de Garçon in Japan fashion Uh. show, where they had the models in braid. And the braid wigs were not bad. They're actually the same kind of street quality wigs that people get in the, here in the, in the wig store. They would look like but Alien they, Nation. They were the so way far that up they, in their head. God, remember Alien Nation? Oh my yes, God. Man. I can't believe you just brought up Alien Nation. I can't believe you just brought up <laughs> our childhood. I can't believe it. Anyway, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> they look like they, they look like the LA Nation. <laughs> like they got like they got cornrows on <laughs> like they got cornrows on top of a cone head. What the fuck? And they it was like the worst. And they would start it at their eyebrows, like above, like right at their eyebrows. Look like the rap. Look, I'm looking up shit. It's like crazy, you know. A just, mess! <laughs> 
And so I think that is like just really reckless. Again, that's an example of somebody just slapping it on and being like, it doesn't matter how it looks. And that's not the kind of care that you would take when you're doing a, when a, doing a hairstyle like that. So yeah, it, I don't want to say it irks me. I actually think that some braids can look good on white people in, in different hairstyles. And it's just so interesting that as the, to me, it really speaks to the bigger imagery of a certain type of privilege that, that I won't call it white privilege. I'll call it hair privilege because being, being from a very young age, I learned that the way my hair naturally grows out of my head is not acceptable to be seen in public and that it is seen as dirty and not, you know, this was back in the day, you know, not kept and not refined. Um, Mm. Watching all of the women in my family straighten and color and dye and fry their hair to get it, you know, as soon as it looked something, like as long as it looked like anything other than how it naturally was, then Mm. it was good. You know, and there's a lot of people that still do that and where people who are adults can style their hair and that's great. And I'm glad we have different tools and options for that. Even wigs and weaves. um, Mm. There's just so much stuff that black people have done or African-American people and, and people of color have done um, to themselves to alter their appearance for the comfort of the people who don't have to do that. In this case, white people that it really is. It can feel like a slap in the face to have a white person come around with dreads or braids. Because That's a really good the, point. A lot of people don't talk about that. Yeah. I remember, and it's not so much this, this, today, but I remember being a working adult and it would not be accepted. You would get fired if you were a black woman who came into the office with your hair braided. Mm-hmm. To have braids, you would get, was against company um, That policy. looks too ethnic. Can you go yeah. home on your lunch break and change it, that? Exactly. And, back, please? and so the, then to turn around and see white people kind of praised and, oh, it looks so good, you know, for the same thing. It's like, what? So it's, edgy. Yeah, it's so edgy and all that. And it's just like, you know, well, that's not fair. And so it really is, kind of, it feels like a slap in the face. The fucked up part is what makes it, what makes it appropriation. And when you talk about, talk like you invented it. Like, that's why it upsets so many people when the Kardashians were wearing those boxer braids. They're like, oh, it's not, it has nothing to do with cornrows. These are boxer braids. But it's like, nubbits. They came from somewhere. And they came before boxers were wearing them. And also, like, okay, there was this, I heard about this on another show, but there was this lady selling literally a bonnet like a bonnet and it was okay. called it was like she this? called it something else she i wasn't trying to spook you but okay. like I w- <laughs> but like <laughs> but she but it was she called it something else and was selling it for literally over two hundred dollars on her website and she acted like black women haven't been wearing that for decades <laughs> you know what i mean so that's what it really is it really starts to become extremely offensive is when white people acted like they invented they invent- it, but it's yeah. different. It's and- yeah. But the, I think that's the thing that I don't like about this letter is this guy doesn't, I mean, I'm not saying he doesn't know, but I he's not, he's already. not, re- um, Madison Mojito is not, rep- is not really talking about the, the fact that they recognize that this is a hairstyle that they are borrowing from another culture. Right. And he, so he's not, so, but the, I think there are people I know that are not black that have dreads and they've learned about the cultural culture of that's of that's culture. all you have to exactly. do exactly exactly so I don't know but either way you could learn all you want about Rastafarian culture you can go move to move to Jamaica you can you know go smoke up with Snoop Lion. <laughs> do whatever you want to do but you will still be a white person in dreads and you will still have to deal with that from strangers on the street so you know it's the choice is yours i say don't cut your hair in, until you're ready but just be ready to have the good a good <laughs> be ready to engage in a good conversation about race and racism and cultural appropriation in our country just be ready to have that conversation and represent the way you need to represent don't cut your hair till you're ready, but be ready. <laughs> <laughs> Bitch. If you don't, if you stay ready, you ain't had to get ready. That's right. Uh, anyway. <laughs> listen, Where them clippers? 
Thank you so much. This is I know Shave that this your head, was, white boy. <laughs> <laughs> I know that this was um, a heavier uh, kind of. T- we we dealt with some more serious issues than than normal, and 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 I do think it's really important that we are able to kind of um, see see the lightness and levity in these situations, even when it comes to something as serious as race. Mm, and it's also important to go out and have those uncomfortable moments where you can talk with other people, people in your family, people at the dinner table, people that you would normally feel uncomfortable about having conversations about race with. They, you know, what is, isn't that what um, uh, Mother Flawless Sabrina said to you? If it makes you uncomfortable, then you should do it. Is that what, is that what she told you? If it doesn't, she, no, she says that, if it doesn't make you scared, it's not worth doing. Okay, well, that's I don't all think along she this. She what she didn't, but that I'm just saying it's it's worth looking. It's at least worth looking into, and so I'm hopeful that we were able to be a little helpful with these conversations um, about race. And we don't have all the answers, but this is something that Caswell and I are still sorting out as well, um, and that our whole country is. And so hopefully we'll get there together. Yes. So um, make sure you follow us on our social media. Um, We do plan on having probably at the end of the season a a sort of recap episode where we can um, bring back. We started to get a few letters that are kind of letting us know, updating us on people's situations. And so once we have a few of those, then we'll do a recap episode or two. Um, Mm -hmm. But in the meantime, make sure you follow us on our social media, which is... It's a mess podcast on Instagram and Twitter. You can also just email us at askkazandpep at gmail.com if you have a question or calamity that you desire our advice about. <laughs> and as usual, faces, places, and names have been changed to protect the innocent and the guilty. <laughs> you scared me. <laughs> uh, thanks so much for listening to the show. We'll see you next week. Bye. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcast.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook. Ew.